Hi, I'm Dave Miranda, General Counsel and Past President of the New York State Bar Association. Welcome to Miranda Warnings. You have the right to remain listening. Today on Miranda Warnings, we're very pleased to have Sherry Levin-Wallach, the 125th President of the New York State Bar Association. Welcome, Madam President. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you on Miranda Warnings. Is it true that you became president so you could appear on Miranda Warnings? Absolutely. I've been dying to be on this show ever I, since you started. You should have just asked. You didn't have to go through all the effort of becoming president Why of the Bar Association. We'd love to have you. We've got so much to talk about. We're very excited about your, your term that started on June 1. Uh, we're on our way transitioning, hopefully, out of the pandemic. What do you think is the biggest challenge facing our association today? Our biggest challenge right now is membership and the future of practice, what it's going to look like in the future moving forward. So those are two very simple answers, but I think also uh, there's a complicated answer to how do we address those. So first on the membership, what kind of initiatives are you going to have to uh, help with our association's membership, both in increasing it and improving the value to the members that we, we have? Well, I think the first thing with membership is we have to remember that it's the personal touches that matter. Even though we've been in a pandemic and we've been forced to go virtual, I think that's largely part of um, some of the losses in value that people see. Uh, on other front, we've been able to provide um, great value in our CLE programming, but great loss in our networking and ability to um, interact with our fellow attorneys and judges. So I started a few weeks before uh, my, I came into my presidency, traveling around the state and meeting uh, with different bar associations, going to their events now that we're having them, reconnecting. Uh, with the local bars, and I plan to also reconnect with the affinity bars to hear the issues that are important to them, the issues that they're facing, and how we as a New York State Bar Association can help support them and their membership, which is our membership base as well, moving forward out of this pandemic. As you're traveling around the state and talking to our members and to other attorneys around New York State, what are you hearing is the most uh, important issue, most important concern? that attorneys in New York have today? So I think um, there's a big gap, if you will, in uh, employment opportunities. Um, or I shouldn't say opportunities. There are plenty of employment opportunities. The gap is in those seeking those opportunities. The firms I hear are having trouble finding applicants for their positions. They have openings. And we just don't seem to have attorneys applying for those positions, particularly uh, upstate New York. That's one of their biggest concerns right now. So for those of you who are listening and are an attorney and looking for employment, you're willing to move upstate New York, Binghamton, Syracuse, Rochester, those firms are hiring and there are jobs there. That's one of the biggest concerns that I'm hearing. I would say the other concern that I'm hearing is um, obviously a larger increase of, a, of the clients who are facing mental health challenges, as well as attorneys facing um, mental health and substance abuse challenges um, as a result of the pandemic and being locked down and the change of lifestyle. Uh, the clients, we're, we're all, are, as a society, I think we know, there's an in, definitely increased focus on well-being 
because we're seeing that people are going through difficult times and they're, they're fighting and they're going to come out and I'd like to help them. Well, first, with respect to the, uh, the employment matter, uh, we sh I should say that the New York State Bar Association has a very fulsome and comprehensive job listing service that is uh, available both to people seeking, attorneys seeking work, as well as to employers and law firms. Uh, very well received. I know a lot of uh, it's used by a lot of uh, young lawyers, uh, law students also. Um, and that's uh, on our on our website and and very popular. The second part, the mental health part, I know is important uh, issue to you. And I understand that you're looking to form a task force to look at the intersection between the mental health issues and the law. Uh, tell us a little bit about that task force and and what you'd like to see our association involved in doing. Absolutely. So this has been something that's been a focus of mine. Um, I think it's particular to my you know, life experiences as well as my practice as a criminal defense attorney. I see that the gaps that exist uh, in, our, in our system to provide support for clients. We also have to take a look at the definitions that we use for disability. Just like a broken bone or somebody who can't walk upstairs, an individual who is fighting um, mental health challenges, it's the same thing. Um, similarly, uh, substance abuse, same thing again. It, it is in, addiction is an illness, and we need to take a look at these things in, in more depth and how we as attorneys can better serve our client base across the board, not only in the criminal realm, but um, in any avenue of practice, whether it's family law, elder law, um, looking at how we can help and better serve our clients by better understanding what it is that they are facing. Um, and also by looking at how we can direct them to support. Of course, when we talk about mental health, there's the need to address the issue for the individual. Uh, but when there's mental health issues uh, in the legal system, it affects all of us. It affects everyone, lawyers and non-lawyers. So when we have uh, mental health issues involved in criminal justice system, for example, or in family matters, uh, it affects not only the person that has the issue that needs to be addressed, but uh, an entire range of other individuals. What can our association do to assist in this regard? Are you talking about educational programs? We're we talking about some sort of you know, pro bono efforts. So I'm forming a task force, or I formed a task force because uh, they were announced on June first on mental health and trauma-impacted representation. That task force is going to be looking at all of these issues um, that you're discussing as far as how we as a profession can not only better serve our clients, but also the intersectionality between the attorneys who are representing clients uh, with mental health diagnoses, with mental health, or living with mental illness, and how it impacts them as attorneys and their also uh, well-being as attorneys. So there is an intersectionality there um, that is going to be addressed. Some of the things that they're going to be looking at is expansion of treatment courts, um, how we can help support the expansion of those courts throughout the state, um, where there are gaps in, in services, where there are gaps in programs, 
reaching out to providers to understand from the providers what their challenges are in providing the services to the clients, looking at the laws as we have them now and maybe how and if they should be changed to better encompass the issue of mental illness. What I mean by that is going back to what I said, for example, um, the definition of disability and, and what that encompasses, what it doesn't mean to be disabled. We have also people who are struggling with employment and housing as a result of their fight with mental illness. And what is it that we can do to better provide opportunities for them? Um, do we need to change the laws so that those individuals who are struggling, or I should say living with mental illness, can live with mental illness and maintain their jobs? They can go to their, their offices for accommodations, just like they would if they had a physical disability. And, um, they would be granted those accommodations and allowed to maintain their job as well as supported with what they are living with. Well, it sounds like uh, uh, a very important uh, task for us, a very important issue. I know that you have uh, a number of issues that you want to address, one of which involves the U.S. territories uh, that you're going to form a task force or you've formed a task force on uh, addressing uh, legal issues involving the U.S. territories. Tell us a little bit about both the task force and why you think it's important that the New York State Bar Association uh, be involved in issues related to the U.S. territories. So the issues with the U.S. territories, uh, I started back when um, H.R. 279 was introduced in Congress. I think it was in May of 2020. Um, it was May of 2021. We lose, we lose track of time in this pandemic. But, um, you know, I started back then uh, educating with wor working with our Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Committee. And, um, and tell me, just tell me what HR 271. Sorry, HR 279. 279. Yes. No, uh, well, I'm more interested in HR 271. Tell me about, <laughs> tell me about that one. I don't want to just talk I, about I don't know what that one is, but uh, we'll have to, we'll have to go look that one up. But uh, HR, HR 279 was um, introduced into um, the, in, to Congress to request that the, uh, our government denounce the insular cases, which is a line of cases that largely uh, create the secondary citizenship uh, for residents of the territories that exist, second-class citizenship. They are also based in um, really in racist reasoning right. um, and are still good law. So those cases decided, decided in the early 1900s are still largely influencing um, the jurisprudence of today. And looking at that, so, so at that time when that was introduced, I began a pro programs with the New York State Bar Association in conjunction and partnership with the Virgin Islands Bar Association, educating uh, the attor attorney across really the country and the world. Anybody had access to it. It was done virtually on these cases, talking about the impact of these cases in society today and why it's so important that we take a look at these cases and we denounce these cases. Um, why does it matter to New York, I think was your question. Right. And um, let, me, let me speak to that. So as I mentioned, 
these cases are based in racist reasoning. And some of the language used in these cases in referring to the residents of the territories is some of the most horrific language that I think anybody would agree, you know, they've seen written in a Supreme Court decision. Right. And before we get to, and, and, and I want to, I want to talk a little bit about that language because it is so striking. But when, so we're talking about a group of cases called the insular cases that were from the early 1900s. That's correct. Uh, and what those cases end up doing is denying citizens of the territories rights that the, that people in the, the rest of the country have, that, right? And so there was a recent case before the U.S. Supreme Court, the Viejo Madero, where Social Security benefits were denied to someone that was at one point in New York and then moved to Puerto Rico. When he went to Puerto Rico, he couldn't get his Social Security benefits anymore. And the Supreme Court said, well, because of this, 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 case, this is okay, uh, Congress is allowed to do this, and they didn't overturn the, well, yeah, the me... insular cases. But so I just want to give that. Now I want to let's talk a little bit about the insular cases and why they're important. But they do have, even though they're from the 1900s, they do have a current uh, interest in in how people are impacted today. So yes, I was I was going to get to that. Um, I think in order to get there, we have to understand that what you were, what you were mentioning, the secondary the second class citizenship. It's not only with regard to Social Security benefits. Right. So residents of the U.S. territories uh, are not entitled to federal benefits when they live in the U.S. territories, even if they had lived in the mainland U.S. and moved back to U.S. territories at some point in later in their life, worked their whole life on the mainland. Um, once they move back to the territories, they're not entitled to those benefits. They're also not entitled to vote. They do not have any voting representation um, in our government structure. While we have representatives like um, Rep Representative Plaskett from the U.S. Virgin Islands, she is not a voting member. And um, that was something that was decided early on when the territories were determined to be unincorporated territories. Unincorporated meaning that they were not on a path to statehood. And not being on a path to statehood, and largely the reasoning in these cases we're discussing gave an explanation as to why, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Um, they were denied the same rights uh, that you would have as a resident of mainland. In addition to voting and federal benefits, um, they also there's also a distinction between the way that residents of the territories. Um, are looked at as far as uh, as far as criminal justice. For example, um, in Puerto Rico, there is federal law as well as state law. Many of the crimes that people are charged with do fall under the federal law. There's a federal prosecutor who's appointed by the government that they don't have a vote in. So um, it's it's a little bit it's very far reaching when you talk about what the limitations are that are placed on the residents. Um, of the U.S. territories. It's a very deep issue um, because at the same time, uh, I think largely the residents of the territories early on and as a result of these insular cases, um, some of the concern was that the traditions that were uh, had uh, held by people in the territories were not Anglo-Saxon enough um, to bring them into full citizenship um, with 
the, within the United States. And then when we're talking about the territories, we're talking about Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands, Guam. American Samoa and uh, Northern Marianas. Yes, those are the ones we're talking about. And each one has their own unique struggle. Um, but overall, all of these are issues are coming to be. So, for example, to get to your point, Viejo Madero, which was the case that was just decided by the Supreme Court, eight to one um, decision, unfortunately, not in favor of Mr. Viejo Madero, who was a Puerto Rican man who lived his entire life um, in New York and hence a connection to New York, which I'll get to a little bit more in a moment. But, um, you know, he was a New York resident his entire life, uh, ended up on SSI, ended up deciding to move back to Puerto Rico to be near his family since he was a disabled man. Um, and it was easier, right, to live with where you have access to family and people who can help you, continued to receive his benefits until he was then sued by the U.S. government. I believe it was somewhere in the range of $28,000, $29,000 that he needed to return um, to the U.S. government um, in benefits that he was not entitled to receive since he had returned to live at in Puerto Rico. But what he would have otherwise been entitled to correct. if he had stayed in New York or any other That's state correct. of the union. That's correct. correct. And so um, that case has, there are a number of cases also kind of following in the heels of Viejo Madero, where I think we hope, uh, and we do have hope, that we will have um, an opportunity to address these issues. Uh, the Fismanu case, which uh, Judge Gorsuch references in his concurring opinion um, to Viejo Madero, um, is coming, I believe it's in the amicus, um, sorry, the um, cert stage right now. And um, that case focuses directly on the question of citizenship uh, involving um, an, a gentleman from Utah. Um, and so that case should be the next case, I believe, that they will hear. And based on uh, Judge Gorsuch's concurrence and the language that he put forth in that concurrence, we have hope that he. Um, in addition to Judge Sotomayor, who was the sole right. dissenter in Viejo Madero, um, sees now the harm that the language in these insular cases has and the harm that it has on the residents of the territories as far as the decision that was made and the, the power that was given to Congress to create this right. secondary citizenship. And just, just, to, just to put a, a point to that, uh, uh, Gorsuch, who, uh, Judge Gorsuch, who put, um, who was with the majority to deny those benefits, cited the insular cases and said that that was a precedent that should be overturned, uh, just not in this particular case. Correct. And so uh, there's some, I think, a clear indication that if there was a, a case, the next case that comes before the court that uh, seeks to overturn these uh, insular cases from the early part of the 20th century, that he certainly would be supportive. It would appear as though Justice Sotomayor would be supportive of overturning. What about the rest of the court? We, we need five. Yeah, I know, and that's where we're struggling, and we don't really know, um, although uh, certainly the, the, if listening to the argument in Viejo Madero, um, the questions that were asked by the court do largely um, address whether or not these cases should be considered in their decision. Ultimately, the question in Viejo Madero was the standard of review um, that mm. was used. And that was, and I, without getting into the weeds as to the specifics. I, we're already um, pretty down in the yeah, weeds. Yeah, we are. So. But, you know, we don't want to get further <laughs> down. But um, I, I do think that there is some hope listening to the questions that were asked by the judges, um, the justices of the Supreme Court, um, to, the, um, to the litigants 
as far as they did understand and see that these cases, the insular cases, um, did have some relevance, just maybe not based on this case. Um, equal protection is an argument that's often used, um, and that was used in, also in Viejo Madero. Uh, I, I feel, and I think those who are involved in the Manu case, feel that the equal protection argument um, certainly was a strong one, um, and hopefully is one that the Supreme Court will look at under different facts. There's also another case coming out of uh, Pennsylvania involving a woman who was denied benefits um, and returned to when they, when she returned to Guam. So there's a number of cases. Um, it is obviously a hot issue. Um, there are law schools looking at this. The ABA passed a resolution in uh, last August, I believe it was, um, to encourage constitutional law classes to teach about the insular cases. Hmm. Many don't even know what they are and have not heard of them. And so um, certainly that was very, very promising to hear that we are now hopefully going to be learning about these cases and the impact these cases have on our, our society as a whole. And just, you know, getting to the New York question, I think what we have to recognize is, A, um, I like to think, and certainly as president of the New York State Bar Association, I want to think and believe that uh, we have a loud voice. New York has a loud voice. Um, we are impactful. We have the largest voluntary bar. Um, so we are in a good position, hopefully, to be heard or to add to the voices that are asking for these cases to be, over, um, to be overturned or to be, um, uh, to be uh, denounced. Um, we also, in New York, have a huge population of individuals from the U.S. territories who were either born there or have family there. Um, or live in both places, right, because of family familial connections. So we have a, num a large percentage of attorneys who are um, attorneys who either do practice in the U.S. territories as well as um, in New York, but also who would seek admission. And finally, I would say this, that uh, in the U.S. territories, the only law school is in Puerto Rico, and it teaches, to my understanding, still only in Spanish. So that limits the opportunity for other residents of the territories or residents of Puerto Rico who are not fluent in Spanish um, to go to law school there. Um, the U.S. Virgin Islands, for example, most of their, all of their attorneys have to leave the islands in order to be educated and then come back. So many of them do come to New York. Um, our New York law schools uh, do support, obviously, educating um, attorneys that then return to practice in the territories or have dual practices. So we are really very interconnected um, with the residents of the territories and the issues of the territories. And so I believe that this is um, very important. And one other point I need to make um, regarding it is the racist aspect of it, racism. These cases are they're really um, deep in racism, the racist language that they use, as you mentioned, that we would talk about. Um, and for example, um, in in and this is these are the it, what what we've referred to as the insular cases that were uh, decided by the Supreme Court in like 1901, right? right? So, but are still uh, still precedent. I know you I know you said before that it was good law, and I know that you don't think it's a good law. We do have some non-lawyers that listen to Miranda right. warnings, and it's a precedent that, uh, in your opinion, should be overturned. And I think you're going to tell me why. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're absolutely right. Um, you know, there was a big discussion also in, um, I think, after the Vieja Madero decision 
as to stereodecisis and the, the importance of stereodecisis and what it means. Stereodecisis is the way a court looks at a case in the past and, and uses the language from that case at, to reason um, either to stay with it or to not stay with it. Um, but stereodecisis would be the cases that they support um, or use to support an argument. So um, there was a big, a lot of discussion after that about um, the, the, the um, insular cases uh, being used in that manner, relying on the insular cases. Um, Downs v. Bidwell, which was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1901, is one of um, the insular cases that we're referring to. Um, and in that case, uh, the, the Judge um, Justice Brown uh, used the language that uh, the American territories, um, and now I'm going to quote, inhabited by alien races differing from us in religion, customs, and modes of thought. And then he went on to say that though, because of that, it makes it impossible um, to govern, quote, according to Anglo-Saxon principles. So that alone, I mean, I think that is an example of why these cases are so, you know, a basis to a large degree um, of support of racism in our country today. Um, further, Justice White used, used language um, such as uh, unknown islands peopled with an uncivilized race, absolutely unfit, I quote, for, for citizenship. So, you know, when we have that type of language um, looked back upon and we are looking at these cases and using these cases to justify, um, you know, future decisions by the court and other courts, I, that is that is hugely problematic, and if we want to, as a as a country and in the legal profession, really get beyond uh, racism, we we can't have this as a base for what it is that we're using um, in our law and in our courts. Uh, we have to denounce this type of language and this view of two point I believe it's two point six million. 3.6 million, and, and my brain today is not telling me which it is. I, I would argue it might be the larger number of residents of the U.S. territories that are our citizens. They're our citizens. And so um, that's, pro that's hugely problematic. And I might point out that the majority of these residents of the territories are black and brown people. And as a result of that, very much impacted by the language in these cases. So the, you've got the task force that's going to look at this. What are we going to do? Are we going to educate? Are we going to get involved in amicus on some of these Supreme Court decisions? Is, is, is that the plan? That is my hope. Educate, get involved in the decisions, um, you know, hopefully come up with policy that would support uh, denouncing these cases and, things, and other um, bills and, and resolutions such as H.R. 279. Um, that was introduced and, and, and hasn't gone very far, unfortunately, um, but should. Uh, hopefully, the Department of Justice will hear us, right. and um, they will no longer argue that the insular cases are either not relevant to a particular argument when we're dealing with uh, cases such as VA Homadero, which is part of the argument that the insular cases don't apply um, when they clearly do um, and do impact the decision making. Um, so hopefully they'll hear that. And, and then the DOJ attorneys um, you know, will, will move alongside with us to not use these cases as a basis for argument. Now, I know that uh, you started out your 
law practice, working as uh, an assistant district attorney in the Bronx DA's office. Currently, deputy executive director at the Westchester uh, Legal Aid. You are past chair not only of the Young Lawyer section, but of the criminal justice section. I know criminal justice issues are very important to you. Uh, is there anything you're going to be looking at as far as uh, the criminal justice system in the year ahead? Absolutely. And yes, it is. It's been the majority of my practice throughout my years. Um, and uh, criminal defense since, well, for the last, let's see, almost 20, some now 21 or so years um, after leaving the district attorney's office, um, I went for a small time into civil practice. But then when I opened my own practice, it was largely criminal defense um, uh, focus. Um, and so, yes, uh, I am, I've created a task force on the modernization of criminal practice, which is right now the time to look at that. Obviously, we are dealing with a number of things within the criminal justice realm, and I couldn't possibly name them all. And I certainly don't want to get into the weeds on the re recent reforms that I think are very Im important. And we should but um, I really want to focus on what the task force is going to be looking at, which is um, sentencing reform, which is a big issue um, to really sentencing minimums are, are hugely problematic. They prevent and restrict judges from allowing individuals the opportunity to um, enter into the treatment courts and diversion courts that we are working so hard to create and expand across the state. Um, and that's just one of the main many issues. Right. And sentencing. what you're talking about would be uh, someone commits a crime and a judge is forced to provide a, a mandatory minimum sentence. Correct. Uh, rather than send them to some sort of a treatment program uh, that perhaps could help them. That's correct. That's right. correct. And um, so they'll be looking at that. They'll also be looking at um, the the ability of the courts to uh, move forward into the modern world, if you will. Um, E-filing is a big issue for criminal courts. We don't have it in the state courts in New York yet. Um, there are some pilots on the horizon, I would say. Uh, but we are, our court system in New York State, our criminal court system particularly, is, is very, um, uh, very expansive, I guess is a fair word to use. Um, there's not necessarily consistency, certainly upstate, downstate, city versus versus not city, versus rural, I should say. Um, we have the justice courts that still exist and um, resource issues within those courts. Um, so it's going to look at e-filing. It's going to look at virtual court. When, when is it appropriate to have a criminal case heard virtually and in what circumstances? Uh, sometimes it's beneficial and sometimes it's not. Uh, clearly, there's um, a push now that you cannot have a criminal arraignment virtually. I know that the the court system supports that um, because it is absolutely paramount that somebody who is charged with a crime and looking at potentially loss of freedom have the opportunity to interact with their attorney, um, which is almost not possible um, in a virtual arraignment setting. There's no privacy for an individual who is in custody uh, to speak to their attorney over you know, a Zoom and really develop a relationship that they need to in order to share a lot of what is going on with them that is relevant, I'm sure, to their situation, I know, to their situation. And that goes to whether, you know, it's, again, a mental, mental health, um, you know, struggle or a trauma-related struggle that led them down the path um, and ended them in a circumstance where they are accused of a crime. Um, but um, also um, looking at when it is potentially beneficial 
Um, we've seen that with uh, our, our young people and in the Raise the Age courts, in order to have parents present in the court, um, if it's done virtually, oftentimes parents that are working um, or to caring for younger children are able to be present. So there's a, it's a really interesting line, so to speak. Um, certainly the opportunity for the attorneys to work out situations without people having to keep coming back to court and missing work, which only further destabilizes people um, and then leads to housing loss and, and, and other, you know, um, other, uh, um, other collateral consequences. So, um, so these are some of the things that they'll, they'll be looking at, and um, they, they may also look at um, jury selection, which I know our criminal justice section is looking at very closely right now, um, but um, there, there may be um, room for the task force and the criminal justice section to work together on best practices for jury selection, which has become also a big discussion in the criminal um, realm, criminal justice realm. Now, I know it was a great honor for you and for our association, quite honestly, to have you be sworn in on June 1st by the Chief Judge of the State of New York, uh, the Honorable Janet DeFiori. Our association has a, a longstanding uh, close relationship with uh, the court system in New York, OCA, and the Court of Appeals, uh, and, and the Chief Judge. Um, what are your thoughts on? Uh, our association's relationship with the courts uh, in the year ahead? Well, I mean, I think we all have to work together, right? I mean, we are all the larger legal system um, in our state. And so we, as an association, have a history of always trying to work together with the courts, with the chief judge um, and the administrative boards to um, find meeting of the minds on issues. Um, certainly, I think it's really very important for us to um, to discuss many of the issues that are facing both our profession and the courts, um, and to consider you know all sides of of any of anything you know any issue. Um, and I think that's what we've done in the past, and what we're going to try to do. Um, I think that uh, that we as an association, of course, have a responsibility to our membership. Um, we have to support our membership and the concerns that our membership brings to us, um, oftentimes in practice and regarding um, whether it's court rules or, or rules of practice or um, any other things. Um, you know, we have to consider what our membership is concerned about. Um, but we, we do our best to work together um, with the chief and the administrative board and, and the Office of Court Administration to resolve our, um, those issues. Um, and where we have differences, um, hopefully we can um, have differences of opinion that allow us to continue to work together, understanding that we both oftentimes have different bases that we are responsible for um, representing the voice in. Well, President Wallach, it's been great having you on Miranda Warnings. I want to thank you for your time with us. I want to thank you for your service, not only to the New York State Bar Association as president, but to our legal profession. Thank you very much. Uh, we have a new feature on Miranda Warnings. Many of the issues that we're talking about today are very serious. I'd like to kind of end on a lighthearted note that will tell us a little bit about you. So our new feature is, what's your karaoke song, President Wallach? 
President Wallach doesn't do karaoke. No karaoke. <laughs> no, no karaoke. No karaoke. So song. no. So no karaoke song. Well, I guess. Were, I guess if what, I did karaoke, yes. my karaoke song would probably be uh, Bobby McGee. But um, Bobby McGee. Uh, okay. <laughs> but I don't do karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> well. President Sherry Levin Wallach, 125th president of the New York State Bar Association. Good luck to you. And uh, thank you again for being with us on Miranda Warnings. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to doing it again in the future. This has been Miranda Warnings, a New York State Bar Association podcast. You have the right to subscribe, rate, and review. 